Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Ewan Steen. Ewan is senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Edinburgh. He's the author of a fantastic forthcoming book, International Relations in the Middle East, to be published by Cambridge either later this year or early next. He's done a huge amount of work on a range of different aspects of Middle Eastern um, politics, be it the international relations of the Middle East, historical sociology, jihadism, and many, many other things. Ewan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. I'm looking forward to, to talking with you. I... I've been reading your work for a, for a while. Uh, we were in, a, in the same book, actually, um, by a, an edited collection from Shara Makbar Zadeh, the um, Routledge Handbook of the International Relations of the Middle East. And your oh, chapter yes. was on the historical sociology and Middle East and international relations, which was fabulous. So mm. I, I thought it was really exciting and a really good chance to, to get you on the podcast and talk through your, your career. So... You and the first question that I tend to ask on the podcast is is what got you interested in working on the Middle East, please, and and academia as well, I guess. Um, yes, okay. Well, that 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 takes me back a little bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did my first degree, uh, which was at Edinburgh as well. Actually, my undergraduate degree was in Arabic, um, so Arabic language. Uh, I can't really remember why I got interested in that. It was quite it was quite random. I think I, I think I began doing archaeology. Okay. Thought Arabic would be useful to know as an archaeologist, and then became more and more interested in the language side of things. Um, I went to Egypt as part of my third year, and so spent some time in Cairo. Right. Um, as a third year undergrad, uh, and then went to Yemen the summer after that. Um. And then, yeah, just sort of maintained fairly consistent um, interest in the in the region. Um, after Edinburgh, I went to Georgetown to do a master's in Arab studies. Uh, and then, yeah, it was about that point that I sort of became more interested in politics uh, and international relations. Um, so still, still using the language and keen to use the language and access Arabic language sources. Um, and yeah, and then went to LSE for my PhD in international relations, uh, and then up to Edinburgh. And that, yeah, I think that, I think that's the story. That's Fantastic. the story. So archaeology was was the the way in, bizarrely. Yeah, I was really. I'd, I'd always been interested in history, ancient history, um, and archaeology. And actually, I remember when I was doing my archaeology degree, uh, the archaeology students were going to get sent to the Isle of Lewis. And the Arabic students were getting sent to Cairo, and that was a, a fairly important factor in my changing degree. <laughs> Cairo was a bit more exciting sounding than the Isle of Lewis. Yeah, and that's not nothing, to uh, not that's anything against the Hebrides at all. Well, of course, yeah, but um, <laughs> but I think Cairo is is a little more interesting. Yeah. What are your What are your recollections of Cairo at that point? And can I ask when was it? This was back in 1995. Right, okay. So a wee while ago. My recollections, I don't know, yes, fairly chaotic um, for us. I hadn't really been to um, any big city, actually, never mind a big city outside of uh, Britain or Europe. 
Um, so ma- massive uh, sort of assault on the senses and all that. Oh yeah. Uh, we went over as a group, so the whole Arabic class went over together. Um, we realised very quickly that the, the fusha, so the classical Arabic, standard Arabic we'd been learning at Edinburgh was not what people were speaking on the streets. <laughs> and so that was, I remember that was quite a shock. Um, but yeah, I suppose my memories of that are just, yeah, sort of complete immersion, trying to learn a language quite quickly or trying to learn two language, languages quite quickly. Um and yeah, and just sort of navigating the city on buses and finding places to stay and things like that. Yeah, that must have been a, a real eye-opening trip. Not only the, the the different language, but also, as you say, going from from not having really visited a big city to the chaos and and the rhythms and the sights and the sounds of of Cairo. That must have been yeah. It was quite a change from the Isle of Arran, where I grew up. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, very quickly, what sort of reactions did you get when you tried to, to use the fusa that you've been learning on the streets of Cairo? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, trying to remember, I think, I think we were just, people would understand us, um, but we would have no idea what was being said back to us. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the, the, the first how we'd learned in the first two years of university was not kind of functional how to survive in a city language. So we, a lot, and as you probably know, a lot of a lot of the everyday vocabulary is completely different in Amiya to how it is in, in Fusha. Yeah. So I think we just it was just a sense. Actually, initially, it was a sense of complete disillusionment like what what have we been learning <laughs> in this university like we're yeah. supposed to be you know university students specializing in a language and we can't we can't order a coffee you know in a, in a cafe um i think it's important that we share these experiences that that people who've gone through them know that they're not alone in this this concern and dejection that moment of what on earth am i doing here yeah yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think it's really important that we share these these intimate frustrations of of, of learning new <laughs> languages. But you and you you did your um, your masters in Arab uh, Arab studies, and then what was the the thing that prompted the burgeoning interest in politics and international relations? Then, hmm. Yes, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose. Yeah, this 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 shift must have happened during my master's degree, um, because I, when I went in, I was still initially interested in sort of language, literature, um, that kind of thing. Um, it may have been just simply being in Washington D.C., which was yeah, you know, okay. very political city, um, having access to the sort of policy community there as a, as a student, you know, people coming to give talks at the university and, and so forth. Um, and I suppose just becoming more politically engaged and interested at that time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I could put my finger on exactly when that changing interest happened, but I think, the, I mean, the, the program of study at Georgetown was, was really excellent. Um, and just remember, you know, we we had a lot of reading beyond the Middle East, you know, just sort of reading political theory, 
um, and engaging with what was what was happening at the time. Um, sure. So, sort of, yeah, late late nineties, early two thousands. Um, yeah, an interesting time to be engaging yeah. with the region, I imagine. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember what was actually. I mean, I suppose it was sort of the tail end of the of the Oslo process. Right. So I think I'd come from Edinburgh, thinking, you know, people were talk, still talking quite sort of positively and optimistically about Oslo, you know, because I started at university in 1993, um, but certainly by the time I finished my master's degree in 2000, and I went, I went to the West Bank in that year. Um, things were becoming a lot more dark and pessimistic. Sure. Um, the outlook was becoming a lot more pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So then there was this decision to do a, a, a PhD, Ewan. What what mm. was the, the PhD in? So, yeah, so I, I did my PhD with Fred Halliday. Um, Lucky you. In the Department of International Relations. Yes, yeah, which was a great experience. I can imagine. Um, and so, yeah, my, my thesis was on Egyptian intellectuals and Israel. Wow, uh, okay. So yeah, I, I knew I wanted to look at political thoughts or political ideas um, in Egypt. And I, I remember I spent the first year or two just kind of hovering around what what could be sort of said about that, about those ideas and how to connect them to international relations. Um, and yeah, at a certain point, I sort of realized that a lot of what people, what intellectuals are writing about and talking about from, you know, the... 40, 1940s up until the end of the 1970s which is when my when I sort of when my thesis stopped when the narrative of the thesis stopped but a lot of international thought in, in Egypt concerned Israel in one way or another yeah uh, and Israel was almost a prism through which people viewed a range of different issues whether that be democracy whether that be imperialism whether that be cultural and religious authenticity mm. um, and so I, I thought it would be a good idea to sort of use that as a focus for the thesis as a whole so look at how how Israel had been viewed through different ideological paradigms interesting so can you how tell those... us a bit more about that then Ewan please I mean who were the, the thinkers that you were engaging with uh, what what were the means through which you were engaging with them and, and what are some of the, the findings that you got out of it yeah, well, I, I, I sort of divided it into three main categories of intellectuals. Um, so Marxists slash leftists, um, Islamists and liberal nationalist thinkers. Um, so I obviously looked at, you know, the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood of Said Qutb and other Brotherhood thinkers Um sort of Nasserist ideology um, and then after 1967 sort of the rise of more kind of liberal ideas um, Tafik al-Hakim uh, other people like that and I think for, yeah, when, when I converted my thesis into a book I sort of continued continued the narrative um, beyond the, the end of the 70s but it was still sort of looking at the sort of Weaving together these three main uh, 
ideological schools of thought. But I also, but in looking at it in terms of paradigms as opposed to ideologies, uh, I think I was able to sort of show how certain aspects of uh, conceptions of Israel were shared across traditions. Um, so that, for example, the idea that Israel represented a, a manifestation of Western imperialism um, was something that was very central to leftist thinking um, in Egypt and elsewhere. Right. But was, but was also sort of adopted and appropriated in different way by Islamist thinkers. Sure. Um, and... Yeah, so the, it was it was about sort of drawing out some of these some of these parallels, and um, yeah, sort of resonances among ideological constituencies, and then uh, sort of trying to link that to what was actually happening politically. So Egypt's own foreign policy trajectories and how these ideas supported, contested. Um, sort of rationalized Egyptian foreign policy. Right. What role do the intellectuals, or what role did intellectuals play in Egypt at this time? Then, I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and and be frustrated at this uh, at the environment where where some, such as Michael Gove, had said the have said that the public is tired of experts and intellectuals. But it sounds mm. as if the intellectuals had had more of a role to play in Egyptian life at that time. Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't really a sociology of intellectuals in the sense that I was trying to show how individual thinkers related to power or related to particular class interests. I found that quite difficult to really tease out. Right. Um, and I was more interested in the ideas and how the ideas themselves functioned politically, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, but I think one of the sort of central things that I found um, was that whereas it had been fairly kind of well established that states, including Egypt and, and many others in the region, used the Arab-Israeli conflict as a sort of justification for authoritarian rule, for oppression, um, as a distraction from sort of economic shortcomings, as a way of scapegoating domestic threats and by associating them with, with Israeli conspiracies, imperialist conspiracies, etc. I think that was that was sort of fairly intuitively understood that, that states did that. Um, what I was most interested in, I suppose, was how opposition movements were doing the same. Right, okay. So for the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, um, the question of Israel was was very important in it in justifi justifying their trajectories. So whether that be focusing on repelling the cultural invasion or the intellectual invasion, which was a very common sort of trope, but the idea being that this was much more important than any kind of military invasion or, or, or military threat to Egypt. What was really important were these ideas that were coming in from outside um, from the West, from the secular West and from Jews in Israel, essentially, uh, and that you had, you know, secular uh, kind of intellectuals within Egypt that were acting as conduits for these sorts of ideas. 
and that the only way then to really com- confront this threat was through Islamization. Right. And so there was that sort of direct linkage made to kind of universally acknowledged external foe, the Israelis, and an Islamist political agenda. Interesting. And this was a sort of cent- central form of rationalization. Sure, yeah. So it's not, it's not just states and regimes that do this kind of thing. Um, political movements use foreign policy in a way for their own sort of domestic objectives as well. Of course. Ewan, where can someone read this then? You mentioned that you turned it into a book. Uh, can you give us the title and the publisher, please? And then we can point people in the right direction. Yeah, that it's um, that's I.B. Taurus, and it's called Representing Israel in Modern Egypt. Fantastic. It's well yes. worth the read. Ewan, before we move on to, to some of your other work, I wonder, I know that there's, uh, there's a lot of respect for the work of Fred Halliday amongst uh, previous guests on the podcast and, and people who listen. So is there... Uh, can you share anything of your time working with Fred? Is there any particular bits of advice that, that has stuck with you that resonates across what you're trying to do in, in your intellectual work? Um, yes. <laughs> That's actually a really big question. It is. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a very imposing intellectual figure um, and a big personality. So he was a hugely sort of influential and affecting person to work with. Um, I mean, I think. I mean, I, I mean, I think about him a lot when I'm supervising my own students as well. I would. I wouldn't describe him as a sort of very pedantic and meticulous supervisor. Um, but he did have this sort of amazing ability to to cut through a lot of uh, needless verbosity <laughs> and right. identify whether you were saying anything of any value or not. So I think that just sort of, that very kind of clear, no-nonsense judgment about ideas, I think, is, has been a very important thing. And so I do often sort of find myself, when I'm writing or teaching, thinking, would 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 Fred raise an eyebrow at this? <laughs> like, would he say, you know, this, that's bullshit? Um, so it's the bullshitometer, I suppose. That's that's one big part of it. Fantastic. Well, but thank also, you for I sharing suppose. That. Sorry, what was that? Thank you for sharing that, Ewan. <laughs> but I suppose also he had a, a fairly kind of holistic approach to working with his students, which was, you know, which I think is very rare now. Um, and that he would socialize with us. He would take us on his overseas trips. Um, and supervision meetings were rarely simply about talking about the, the particular draft that had been submitted. They would cover a whole range of his ideas and reflections on things. Um, and just, yeah, he had this kind of insatiable curiosity about everyone and everything, um, no matter who he, he met, I mean, having travelled with him, you could sort of understand how he was able to produce these kind of rich analyses because he would be in in, a, in an elevator in a lift with, with somebody and, and leave it having found out where they were from, what they thought about X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, 
So I think that was also something that was just very impressive about him. Oh, it's a wonderful skill to have, I guess. He's obviously mm. done so much for for the discipline. Uh, his his work on the international relations of the region, along with everything else, continues to to have a, a huge impact. And I, I wonder, is this where you get your your interest in in historical sociology from? Then, given that you had this this interest in in literature, archaeology, language. Where, where does that, that real IR side come from in your research? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose it, it certainly, certainly is heavily influenced by Halliday's approach, um, certainly to ideas, to ideas as being sort of rooted in contexts and histories. Um, I mean, I actually, I actually sort of first started getting into sort of things like Gramsci and Bourdieu, these kinds of thinkers at Georgetown. You know, right. these these were quite widely discussed in our in our classes at Georgetown, um, which I suppose made me interested in working with Fred Halliday um, because I knew he was sort of sympathetic to these sorts of ideas and an approach to international relations that was, you know, not not just kind of about geo- geostrategic issues and this sort of quite narrow range of questions that many IR theorists from kind of realist traditions might be asking. So that he had a very expansive uh, idea of what the international was and what counted as international relations. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I think I've certainly taken that with me, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself forward as a as a theorist of international relations. Um, I did my PhD in international relations, and I'm interested in international questions. Right. Okay. Um, but I think, like a lot of area studies specialists, you you very quickly realise that you, if you neglect what's going on inside states, you you really, you might be able to tell a story, but it can be quite a, a narrow. Yeah, short story. Uh, I think that that's one of the appeals for me for for the historical sociology approach, and and for someone who claims not to be a theorist, I think you present theories in such an accessible way, in such an engaging way. So, so well done on not being a theorist, but keep up the theorizing. I guess I should say. Mm. Well, I mean that's that's definitely another Halliday trait. Is just is that that. Uh, sort of preoccupation with writing things that people are actually going to, you know, you write trying to write with the with the reader in mind. Just yeah. because I do, I, I do try to do. I don't think I will succeed, but <laughs> I do, I do try to do that. So, can I can I prompt you on on a couple of things, Ewan? Uh, you you've mentioned this this interest in ideas and and this interest in historical sociology. I wonder. Starting with ideas, could you just give a, a bit of guidance for anyone who's working on ideas within the context of the international? What what should they be looking out for? What should they be doing and, and the pitfalls to, to avoid? I suppose I like to think about ideas, ideologies, um kind of in, in relation to the to the context in which they're produced right um, and as as being more meaningful and perhaps signifying more than 
the than than there's than than the internal content of the ideas themselves. Um, so I suppose this idea or this notion, which is quite prevalent in constructivist IR theory, that it's basically the sort of exchange of ideas and identities and norms that themselves are driving political life. I've, I'm a bit kind of wary of that idea. Right. Um, and of, But also, I suppose, more maybe more precisely, just the idea that the particular identities and normative systems can be reduced or can be sort of unified at the state level. So, for example, analyses of, of the contemporary Middle East which focus on Saudi Arabia as a Sunni state of on Iran as a Shia state and then look at the sort of the contestations between these two countries for control or dominance of an Islamic discourse which is not always as crudely stated as this is a Sunni-Shia conflict that's been going on for centuries sometimes it's mo it's more sophisticated which is that these are two states each of which have aspirations to leadership of, of the Islamic world. I, I question those sorts of um, analyses because I think you need to look at the... You, just, you need to look much more closely at the domestic context and not just the international. Yeah, of course. So you have to ask why, why would Saudi Arabia seek to substantiate leadership of, of the Muslim world? Why would Iran seek to substantiate leadership of the Muslim world? The answer to these questions are not self-evident. Um, not all states seek that kind of, you know, acknowledgement of, of dominance and of leadership. And I guess that's where the historical sociology approach comes in that allows you to, to reflect on these, these domestic factors alongside the international factors. Exactly, yes. I mean, and, and that's kind of what I try to do in the book that uh, I've been working on for the last few years, the International Relations in the Middle East book, um, which is to look at basically foreign policy in terms of hegemonic strategies, um, which can include international dimensions and domestic dimensions. Okay. Um, so ideas, you know, as, as, you, as you'll know from Gramsci, from Althusser, uh, serve particular hegemonic purposes. They serve to substantiate the particular st uh, structures of power within social formations. Um, and foreign policy can is not shouldn't shouldn't be disassociated from that. So, what is it about Iran, this, the internal structure of power in Iran, that necessitates this sort of? Uh, claims to leadership of the Islamic world or what is it about Saudi Arabia that necessitates those sorts of claims claims to be dominant and to have influence um, and so it's, 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 it's really about that it's about looking at what the, what the particular configurations of power within states are and how ideas factor into those right. and how foreign policy and international alignments can serve to substantiate those kinds of ideas. It sounds 
fascinating, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to reading it. How are you teasing out this this analysis? Um, well, it's it's a chronological analysis, so it it begins um, sort of at the with the end of the First World War, really, and looks at the formation of the Middle East as a as a as a region. Right. Um, and I, I try to look at pivotal states. So the case studies shift according to which states were pivotal at different times. So Egypt was pivotal during the 1950s and 60s. Um, Saudi Arabia was pivotal, you know, from the 1970s. Um, so different states come in and out of my analysis depending on how uh, central they have been to regional dynamics as a whole. Right. Um, and what I'm trying to do is sort of weave through these two, there's two sort of central concepts. The first is the idea that the region has been dependent on external support. So all of the states in the region, one way or another, have been dependent on external economic and military support. Um, and so their their foreign policies, on, in one sense, are calibrated to maximize that kind of support um, which has often involved competition with other states to justify, you know, priority. Yeah. Um, so that's one level. That's the sort of outward-looking driver of of regional order, and the other is more internal, which is um, that basically states the, the states' internal hegemonic strategies require some sort of ideological justification in the absence of political and economic rights. And foreign policy has historically been very, very central to that. And I, I sort of alluded to this a little bit earlier. So the, the idea of just sort of justifying the withholding of political freedoms or the persistence of economic inequalities with reference to overriding external threats and the need to combat them. Right. And that's been the case, you know, with, you know, Iran since since the revolution. It's been the case for for Egypt, for Saudi Arabia, for Syria, uh, for Iraq, for Israel. Um, it's, so I, I look at a range of different cases to show how these two kinds of imperatives relate to each other. Philosophically speaking, what do you think that that this tells us about political communities in the sense that it strikes me that I mean, in no way is this meant to be a claim about exceptionalism but it strikes me that that communities require some type of other and I, I don't want to go down the, the Schmittian analysis but it strikes me that there's there's some something that allows that that foreign policy move to gain traction and to speak to, to different groups that will then willingly give up those those rights that you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, and I, I suppose that's, yes, I mean, I suppose that sort of gets into some of your own work on, on sectarianism, and sectarianism can be one one form of that, and it's, we can definitely see that in the Middle East as something that goes all the way down to the community level and is then extrapolated as a sort of regional conflict involving states. Mm. Um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, in my in my own book, I'm not making a, a grand philosophical statement about 
the need for others. Uh, but and but yeah, clearly we see this all over the world, and the Middle East is by no means exceptional yeah. in this regard. Sure, that outsiders are identified, defined, and blamed for things. I mean, I suppose the other thing I try to do is, is show that that's not that's not the only form of instrumentalization of foreign policy issues or international issues. It's not just othering. There's also there's also claimed solidarities are quite important. Yeah, of course. So yeah. nationalism, pan-Islamism, um, these kinds of ideological movements on one level, but also the assertion of, of regional influence um, is a very important part of how states attract external support and generate internal consent. Um, so obviously... And this gets to the heart of sort of what makes a region a region, I think. The idea that you have a regional power, that then the external patron, whether that be the United States or the West in general or Soviet Union during the Cold War, can then identify that, okay, this is, these are the people who matter in this region and these are the people that deserve our support most. And so those that generates sort of foreign policy narratives as well, that that requirement to demonstrate regional relevance and influence yeah of course mm. well i'm really looking forward to this year and i'm really looking forward to sitting down and reading it it sounds absolutely fascinating and i'm sure it's going to have a, a big impact on how we think about the interaction of the domestic and the regional and the international and and international relations in the middle east more broadly but We've taken up a great deal of your time, so all I want to do now is just say thank you so much for, for talking with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating and, and deeply provocative in terms of how we're thinking about some of these things. But thank you so much, Ewan. I really appreciate great. it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.